before we read this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 14. And for those who are able, please rise in respect and honor of God's word as we read this morning. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there. Then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your appetite craves and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night and you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset, at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. You shall count seven weeks, Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your land, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner the fatherless, and the widow who is among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you should be careful to observe these statutes. You shall keep the feast of booze seven days. 
when you have gathered the produce from your threshing floor and your winepress. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord your Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all of your produce and in the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join with me in prayer. Father, again, uh, we remember that this very, this very thing that we have done, listening to your word, is yet another reminder of how you are a God who is gracious. You give this to us for our good. And we pray that um, you would continue to pour your grace upon us even now as we are, are listening, as I am uh, seeking to lead us in thinking about it. Um, Lord, help us to taste and savor your grace and be changed by it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so there was a study recently that I came across where um, two groups of people were both given a candy bar. So this is, first of all, a study that I think I would enjoy. And the first group um, was just told, take the candy bar and eat it. End of the process. The second group also ate the candy bar, but they were actually able to enjoy it according to the you know, like questions after more than the first group. And, and the reason was they were given, well, they were told, first, take the candy bar, break it in half, unwrap the first half, now eat the first half. Unwrap the second half, now eat the second half. In other words, they were given a ritual, and the ritual was key to them savoring it and enjoying it more. In another study, you also have two groups. Both of them come, and there's like a lecture and that kind of thing. But one of the groups, they are told at one point to stand up, get on one foot, hop a couple of times, say a few crazy things, and sit back down. At the end of both of these lectures, the, the, the group that did the crazy thing felt a greater sense of connection and unity with each other because they engaged in a ritual. Rituals have been shown to make differences in all sorts of areas. When, when people are anxious, like they're coming to the plate and they, like, they pull their gloves and they do things, it actually is shown to help with anxiety. When people are grieving, those who grieve better usually do so accompanied by rituals, whether that's funerals or wearing black. Rituals are, are powerful. We might not think in those terms. I think sometimes when we hear the word ritual, we have kind of this negative connotation like ritualistic or Empty rituals oftentimes we'll speak of. But rituals are really actually quite important to just what it means to be a human being. A ritual we might kind of like define as um, a sequence of actions or behaviors that we use to engage with something that is intangible. So, so a pattern of behaviors that we engage with something intangible. See, there are some things in our lives that are just kind of abstract, and it's hard to know how to connect to it. Like, how do you love a country? You can't hug a country. So, so what do we do? We have a ritual. We take off our hat, put our hands on our hearts when we are singing the national anthem to express something that's otherwise intangible. 
When you have a fear of speaking in front of people, you can't like, you know, like punch your anxiety. So what do you do? Maybe you have some sort of crazy ritual. Maybe you turn around a couple times or do something, something where your body is able to engage with something that feels intangible. And, and that's the thing. We're body, you know, we're, we're embodied creatures. We, we, we interact with reality with our bodies. And rituals are the way that we can use our bodies to connect to something that's hard to connect with. And when you think about it, rituals are everywhere. I mean, there are communal rituals, ways of, like graduation, that's a ritual, right? Wedding, funeral. There are family rituals. Think about what you guys would do as a family on, on a Christmas Eve. You have your own special rituals to try to connect with that reality. There are personal individual rituals. Apparently, Michael Jordan would always wear the same pair of shorts for every game. I can't imagine how they could have lasted for years, but that was his ritual, his way of dealing with certain things. Rituals are everywhere, and almost always, rituals indicate something important, because it is our way of trying to interact bodily with something that matters, but that we have a hard time getting our minds around. Which means, if you want to understand a culture, you could do a pretty good job by just looking at their rituals. So I want to just imagine as a thought experiment, imagine a, a cultural anthropologist from a completely different country comes and wants to study our culture. And so one weekday morning, she just parks herself in Starbucks. She's sitting in a chair, and she just kind of watches. And she takes notes as she sees certain rituals. Like the ritual of greeting when two people who haven't seen each other in a while, but they just somehow bump into each other at Starbucks. You know, there's the liturgy, hey, how are you? Doing well, how about you? And then she notes, and at this point, we talk about what we do. Super busy. Oh, I've had a productive week. And, and she takes notes. Seems like that's a key thing. And then, and then maybe she notices that there's also a ritual of farewell at the very end. Oop. Usually, you'll look at a watch or you'll look at a phone to indicate time and maybe say something about your need for speed. Got to run, got to jet, got to go. Another ritual that she will notice almost inevitably at Starbucks is the ritual of the phone. When they are in line, if they are not engaging with anyone, they pull out their phone. When they are done and waiting for their cappuccino, whatever, they pull out their phone. And if she's really nosy and, and looks to see what they're doing, she'll realize there's a few different things. Sometimes it's productivity. Sometimes, like with, you know, communications like emails or texting. Sometimes, she might notice, it's, it's more just about news gathering. Sometimes, it's just about entertainment. But, but there's always the need to be doing with the phone. And if she's a particularly perceptive cultural anthropologist, she might say, what's valued here seems to be busyness, speed, productivity, activity, things that generally we think make up a very good machine. In fact, if she's really attentive, she might notice that language kind of reflects that. When people, maybe when they're talking about saying, yeah, I need this coffee so I can get all my pistons firing, or, you know, I've struggled with this because I'm not really wired for this kind of action, or, you know, I'm struggling, I don't have the bandwidth for all of this right now, or someone might take up their life hack, all of these metaphors that speak of the human being as a machine. And, and perhaps the cultural, cultural anthropologist at the end will say, I think in this culture, one of the great human values is to be an efficient machine. And would she be right? I think it's hard to argue with that conclusion, isn't it? I mean, think about, and, and speaking generally, and there are 
all sorts of exceptions, probably even in this room. But generally, we pride productivity. We, pri we, we value efficiency. When, when we are feeling kind of depleted, how do we try to feel full? Isn't it oftentimes through busyness? B busyness allows us to feel in demand, it, on top of things. Yes, we feel stretched, but we're embracing our opportunities. It's, it's part of what makes life feel like we're, we're doing what we're supposed to. And in those occasions where we find ourselves having kind of these gaps where there isn't anything to do, well, now, thankfully, we have our phones so that we can either do something or pretend to be doing something with some simulation of activity like a game. And if the phone is taken away from us, for some reason, maybe we're in an office where we don't have the phone or that kind of thing, or maybe we just kind of try to go without it for a little while, we find ourselves feeling almost edgy, uh, feeling like we need to do something, sometimes maybe even almost feeling kind of empty or depressed because we don't feel like we're being what we're supposed to. We don't feel like we are functioning as machines. You know, in the ancient times, they would not call that machines. The word they would use for humanity that is valued only by what they do and how busy they are would be slaves. And it's hard to escape the conclusion if one looks at our rituals, our language, and our habits and ways of being. It's hard to escape the conclusion that we are in the process of losing what it means to be human and what it means to be free. So leaving that cheery thought for a moment, let's, let's move to uh, another set of rituals. Again, let's, let's use our cultural anthropologist tools and now move to a very different time, a very different culture, and look at some rituals that we have just encountered in the book of Deuteronomy. We're, you know, continuing in this series in Deuteronomy, and this morning I want us to consider Sabbath rituals. So as Nick pointed out a couple weeks ago, the Ten Commandments that come out, again, this is the second time you see the Ten Commandments, first in Exodus, but then Deuteronomy chapter 5, kind of acts like a, a table of contents for the chapters that follow, as, as Deuteronomy just kind of in progress goes through the different commandments. And this morning, I want to consider the fourth commandment and also its connection to this passage. You might remember the fourth commandment is the Sabbath commandment, where there is this commandment by God that on the last day of the week, they are to cease from all of their work, and it's to be a sacred holy day to God, free of labor. And this morning, the passage that we have just read is, is kind of an expansion upon this. It takes that same idea, this ritual of rest, because that's what it is, right? It's this weekly ritual of rest that God has commanded and also applies it to the year. Not only, we are told, are they supposed to structure their weeks through rest, but they're also supposed to structure their year in the same way. To understand you've got these three feasts and, and what, how they function, it's probably helpful first to realize that the first six months, the, from the month of Abib, which is the first month, through beginning of the seventh month, that was their chief time of productivity as a people. Because in the first month, about halfway through the first month, that is when they began harvesting. They harvested for about seven weeks or so. After the end of harvesting, then they would shift to the next thing, which is threshing and processing and pressing the grapes and pressing the olives and, and getting everything stored. Those six months and how much was produced was literally a matter of life and death. This was their survival. But what we should notice here is that 
throughout this time that is emphasizing productivity, it is punctuated and oriented again and again towards rest. It begins with rest. The first feast that we see is saying you celebrate the month of Abib and specifically the Passover. Oh, we might remember the Passover. This is the one that is remembering God's redemption from Egypt of his people. They eat the Passover lamb, and then for a week that follows, they are to eat unleavened bread. And notice how it culminates in verse 8 of chapter 16. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn, which literally is sacred. It doesn't mean you have to be all serious. It's just special. To the Lord your God, on it you shall do no work. It begins with rest. And then the very next day, after, after this kind of culmination of rest, that is when the harvest begins. And so for seven straight weeks, of course, celebrating Sabbath as a day of rest each week, that is all the time of harvest. And then after seven sevens, you have essentially a super Sabbath. So verse 9, you shall count seven weeks Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain, that is the day after the Feast of Unleavened Bread is over, and then you shall keep the Feast of the Weeks to the Lord your God. So after seven sevens, you've got a seven sevens, you've got another Sabbath, but this one, everyone comes down to Jerusalem, and for an entire day, they just have a party. It's a feast to celebrate, hey, we have the harvest. There's still work to be done, but midway through, they're rejoicing. And then they go back to work the next day because there is still a lot of work to be done. As I said, gathering the grain, pressing the wine, all of those kinds of things. So after the seventh day, there's rest. At the seventh day, there's rest. After the seventh week, there's rest. And then on the seventh month, we have yet another feast. That is the Feast of Booths. It says, you shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. When everything is done... Celebrate the Feast of Booths. And, and notice it says you shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days. Feast of Booths could easily be translated Feast of Shelters because it is a feast where for an entire week all of Israel comes to Jerusalem and brings tents and they camp out for a week-long feast. A week-long party. No work, just rejoicing. So this is, this is what God is commanding. And, and I want us to put on our cultural anthropologist hat. I'm, I don't know if they have hats. Or get our cultural anthropologist notebook or whatever it is. And it says, what is it that we see here? What, what are these rituals meant to be showing Israel? What is the point? Sometimes I think when people talk about kind of this Sabbath principle, their focus is kind of on the one-seventh. That, you know, the idea is kind of almost like one-seventh of our waking time needs to be spent resting. That's just kind of the way that we are wired. And maybe that's right. But I actually don't think that's the point here. The point is what God is seeking to show in a very bodily fashion is that you and I were made for rest. The, the, the Sabbath week, the week that ends in Sabbath, the point is not it's the one-seventh. The point is it's the culmination. It's the destination. It's what it all was for. In this season where productivity was ultimately valued, notice how rest is in some ways elevated so that it is valued even more. Before you work, I want you to rest. 
When you're midway through, you still have work to done, but there's a point of celebrating, I want you to rest. At the very end of it, after you brought, I want you to extravagantly rest. What God is doing with these rituals is communicating to his people, look, you are not machines, you are not my slaves, you are not just poor productivity. What you are are people that I have created to enjoy my goodness. I have made you to enjoy rest. And, and actually, if we look and think about what these feasts are about, they actually show us what kind of rest God has in mind. Rest is not easy. Uh, like, resting well, it's hard to even know what it sometimes looks like to rest. These, if we look at these feasts, it actually shows us a few different attributes about really what rest in its fullest sense is. And let me just highlight three aspects of this rest that God says is what we are meant for. This rest we see in these feasts is communal. I think it's probably good to start here because oftentimes when we think of, of, of relaxation and resting, we think of kind of getting away by ourselves, going for a walk, reading a book. And, and to be clear, there is something very restful about that. We see Jesus at times retreating to be in a solitary place after he has been with people. That is good, but, but notice here that the, the fullness of rest involves people coming together. I mean, these massive celebrations, the whole nation gathering in the city for a feast, one time one day, one time seven days. What we're being told here is when we're thinking about what rest looks like in its fullness, we shouldn't think of being by ourselves. We should think of a community of love. When you imagine what rest is supposed to be, imagine a group of people around a table, laughing with each other, sharing in God's goodness with each other, and savoring. Rest, in its fullest sense, is supposed to be communal. Secondly, we see here that rest is about rejoicing. That is, rest isn't just an absence. Sometimes when we think, especially of Sabbath, we think of just like you're cutting away work, but, but that's not the point. The point is not to cut something away in and of itself. It is to turn our attention towards what is good and to savor um, do you notice, did you notice this repeated refrain when this was being read? So, for example, when it's talking about the Feast of Weeks to the Lord, notice the command in verse 11, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Or if we missed it, it's once again there in the Feast of Booths, verse 13. You shall rejoice in your feast. And at the very end, when he talks about what God is doing, he will bless you in all your produce and in the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. There is this intent that God has that when people are gathering and resting, they are to savor, to delight in God's goodness, and to allow their hearts to be made full by it. And one of the things I love most about what we see in this passage is that oftentimes God actually invites a kind of crazy extravagance in this regard. I don't know if you noticed this, but chapter 14 talks about something that I think is probably in line, it might even be related to the Feast of Booths, but it is this command about tithing. It's saying, you shall take a tenth of all that you've made, all of your grain, all of your wine, all of the animals that have been born, take one-tenth and come into the presence of God before me, that is in Jerusalem it will ultimately be, and eat and drink it all. And, and then he goes on to say, now I realize some of you might be coming from far away, and so all of this food's not going to keep for the whole journey, so sell it, 
And then here's what you do once you get close to Jerusalem. Now, think about it. 10%. This is an enormous amount of your produce. Sell it all, and then here's what you do when you get close. Spend the money for whatever you desire. You need to use the whole wad. Don't keep anything. Whether you want to get oxen or sheep, whether you want to get a good steak, wine or strong drink, a cabernet or beer or lagavulin whiskey, whatever your appetite craves. There was cheesecake in that day. Do you notice that the emphasis here is things that you desire, just buy it all. Don't leave a sense. I mean, accountants are probably looking at this and going crazy. Like, why would you spend all, a tenth of all that you've made on one week of feasting? But that's the point. God is saying, I want you to have this extravagant time of rejoicing. Because that's what rest is about. You, you, you're not meant to just kind of hold on to all of these things for a rainy day. I have created you to enjoy these good things. So Sabbath rest, this rest that we are made for is about rejoicing. And, and finally, and also incredibly importantly, it is about remembering, specifically remembering God. I think it, Sabbath, I've noticed, is becoming a bit more trendy because there is this just awareness that we just cannot maintain the pace of life that we're maintaining. But sometimes it kind of becomes secularized. It's just we need to set apart some time just for downtime. And I'm all for downtime, but, but we need to recognize that rest in its fullness is sacred you notice again and again, whenever it's talking about these rituals of rest, it's saying, do this in the presence of God. Come to the place that I have placed my name, that is Jerusalem, so that as you are eating and as you are drinking in an extravagant fashion, you are doing it with me so that you remember that I am the one who has given you this all. That I'm the one who has made you to rest. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who created and made all of these, for, th these things for you. Remember and rejoice in my presence because in my presence is fullness of joy. In fact, there's this interesting detail in, in chapter 14 when he is explaining this rule of the tithe. I don't know if you noticed it, but at the end of verse 23, it's like, eat these things that you may learn to fear the Lord your God which is interesting because I think so often we associate fearing God with a solemnity and a sobriety and a seriousness. But he's saying, I want you to have this experience of joy in my presence that you could understand what it means to fear me. Fearing me, God is saying, is not just about a serious face. To, to revere me in the way that I want you to involves rejoicing with gratitude and knowing that in me is the fullness of joy. Which to me is such a twist on how we sometimes think of the Old Testament people. Like when we think of the Mosaic Law, we think of a lot of rules and how binding and how wearing it can be. But do you see what's being commanded here again and again is, I want you to have fun. I want you to have a party. I want you to feast. And I will literally be the life of the party for you. That's what it means to fear me. Do you see, if we, if we take a step back and look at these rituals and these commands, what God is, is showing at the very heart of what it means to be you, the way God has designed you, at the very heart of what it means to have a relationship with God, the way that God wants to relate to you, is rest. Is that how you see things? You know, the person, I think, who understood this better than anyone else, actually, was Jesus. Which may feel surprising because I think sometimes, 
uh, we have this image of Jesus as someone who is intense and solemn and radical. And to be clear, there was a prophet who was like that in the time of Jesus. That was John the Baptist. But there's this interesting interaction that Jesus has at one point with the Pharisees where he says, you know, John the Baptist, you didn't like because he was too radical for you. You know, he didn't eat bread. He didn't eat meat. He was this prophet. And you said, he has a demon. But now, and it's interesting, Jesus kind of like puts himself as the opposite of that. Now you look at me and you call me a glutton and a drunkard. Which is interesting because the only reason that they would think of Jesus in that way is because, well, because he was regularly at people's house for parties. Right? Sometimes like scandalous parties, like tax collector parties, like how dare he parties. But he, not in a way where there is drunkenness, but in a way where he would enjoy food. He would enjoy drink because he knew what it meant to be those created for rest. He knew what it meant to fear God. And he displayed it in his life. In fact, perhaps most importantly, in the Gospel of John, there is this one miracle that is the first of his miracles that is presented as programmatic. It is John says this is the one where he reveals his glory, where he shows what he has come to do. And do you know what that miracle is? It's when he saves a party, a wedding feast, by turning water into wine. And what Jesus is showing in that moment is not only that he understands that we were made for rest, but he knows that what he came to do was to bring us the rest that we have lost. See, in the Old Testament, even as these people were celebrating what God has done, freeing them from Egypt, there was a real sense in which they continued to be enslaved, right? There was a continued slavery to guilt, to sin, and and death was before them still. And so, in a real sense, every time these Sabbaths, these feasts were celebrated, on one hand there was a rejoicing, but on the other hand there was a longing, a longing for the day when they truly would be able to experience rest in all its fullness. And Jesus came and said, that is why I have come. When Jesus, in his death and resurrection, what he did was he did the work we could not do. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. He conquered death. And having said, it is finished and completed his work, he rested. In the resurrection, he entered into this new new creation of fellowship with God, of, of, of shalom, of goodness, where he experienced rest, and he says, all who are in me, this is your future. I mean, this is what he means when he says, come to me, all you are weary, I will give you rest, because that's what I've come to do. Whenever someone places their faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God begins to work in our hearts and already teaches us in a real way that we are children of rest. We are given a new ability to to be at peace, to know that our sin is dealt with, that we don't have to do anything to prove ourselves to God because Jesus has already done it for us. Now, we are still, of course, in a world where there is plenty of labor, where there is brokenness, where we carry each other's burdens, where there is suffering. But as those who are now in Christ, we have the ability to face these things differently as those who already know that our rest is one for us. Yes, we work, but, but as we work, we still are able to rejoice and savor God's goodness even in the middle of work and know that this work, whatever it is, whatever the outcome, is not what defines us. 
Yes, we find things that we feel overwhelmed by, but as we do that, we can turn to God and we can trust and know that He is good and He will bring us through it, whatever that might mean. And in the way we approach life, in the pace of life, when we internalize what what all of this is showing us, we can learn to slow down and to savor and to become human. Now, to be clear, if we do internalize what, what the Sabbath is meant to teach us, what Jesus confirms for us, it, it's going to make us weird. I'm not sure there's actually anything more countercultural, really, than understanding this, because it fights against the very central idols of our day, this idea that we don't need to be productive to have worth. And so as we, as we do the counterculture with different plans and different priorities, we are going to find resistance, resistance within ourselves because we're not going to be sure that we're right, and resistance outside of us as the world doesn't see that we're right. But here's the thing. When the world has lost its mind, craziness will seem normal and wisdom will seem insane. We need to recognize that if we take this seriously and lean into this, there is an act of resistance that we will need to embody. And let me say, it's not going to be enough, I would suggest, just to try to remember that, to remember each day. There's a way that we need to internalize it. There's something that is, that is mysterious and big about this idea that we were made for rest, so that we need to kind of engage with it in our bodies in some way. We need practices. We need rituals of rest. Now, we're not in the Old Testament. I don't believe that we are given very specific instructions about how to practice these things in the way that we're in the Old Testament. But I would suggest that if we want to embody this and become human as Jesus has intended us to be, we will need to adopt practices that remind us again and again of what we really are. If you're wondering some ideas, I want to give a few ideas as long as it's clear that none of these are rules, none of these are what God says you must do. These are possible ways that if you are seeking to appropriate this, rituals that you can use to embody this reality. Let me just suggest three as we conclude. One is, and this won't surprise you at all, I think there is probably no greater way of learning this posture of rest in this reality than taking an entire day off. Taking Sunday is probably the easiest one because you already have a lot of the work done for you, right? You're already gathering with people. There's already even times of feasting with community groups, but saying, this is a day that we're not going to do homework. This is a day that I'm not going to have the to-do list to work on. This is a day maybe that we don't even look at phones or computers, but we just set this day apart to remind ourselves that we are human beings designed for rest. Let me say, if, if you try to do that, It will be hard, and the hardness, I suspect, will be less about the fact that you feel like you'll run out of time, although I'm sure that will sometimes feel the case. It's that you won't know what to do with yourselves. You will feel kind of like, you'll feel like almost edgy. You will be experiencing productivity withdrawal, and let me suggest that's exactly the point. It's what happens when you're being brought to who you are. A second suggestion, if you have a week-long vacation, maybe with friends, maybe with family, seek to completely digitally disconnect. I mean, yes, you might need your GPS or whatever, but, but as a matter of principle, the phone is a way that keeps on trying to communicate to us that we need to respond, we need to act, we need to be active, and if we want to remember who we are, we need at times to disconnect from the digital world. 
What would it be like for you, your family, to have nothing to do except to see each other and to talk with each other and to engage with the world around you? I would suggest that would be a posture where you're learning Sabbath rest. Finally, considering this emphasis on feasting, let me just suggest we probably, there would be value in us making greater priorities of feasting, of, of longer meals with, with other people, savoring together and just doing it for the sake of enjoying the goodness of God and His presence. You might have other ideas. There is no one way, but I would suggest that for us to be human, we should seek to embody these things. And wherever we are, however we feel about these things, let me suggest that the first step that we should do is to pray, to To pray in a way where we acknowledge ways where we have forgotten who we are and confess those things and turn to God asking that he would lead us into the rest that we were meant for.